I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Lori Frankel is the New York Times bestselling, award-winning author of four going-on-five novels. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Publishers Weekly, People Magazine, Lit Hub, The Sydney Morning Herald, as well as many other publications. She is the recipient of the Washington State Book Award and the Endeavor Award. Her novels have been translated into more than 25 languages and have been optioned for film and TV. A former college professor, she now writes full-time in Seattle, Washington, where she lives with her family and makes good soup. Her latest novel is Family, Family. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, Chris. I'm thrilled to be here again. I read something interesting on your website. Heredity doesn't mean what we think it does, and family is more complicated than genes. So tell me, where did that come from? Oh, I feel like that is, that's almost my mantra. I think it is what I am always always on about is what I'm always writing about. You know, I think, I think families are really interesting to write about because they're endlessly fascinating, but they are quite a bit wider and more diverse than purported. I get really itchy and nervous when people start to say, this is what makes a family and this isn't. I feel like that's never good. Mm -mm. It's not a slippery slope. It's like a cliff. And, you know, and I just think that as a writer, I am very interested in writing about non-traditional families because they are interesting. They're endlessly fascinating. And so often they are portrayed to us as this very like black and white, here's the box, you fit in it or you don't kind of a situation. And I just think that is always absurd. And in this case, particularly absurd. Well, you look at how we were raised, those of us that were raised on television, like me, from the early, early days, you have the leave it to beaver family. That's the perfect family. That's what we are all supposed to aspire to be. And I would love to see June and Ward handle (laughs) some of the problems that 99% of us would roll our eyes at now. Yeah. Right. And that's a good thing. Not a bad thing. Even to the extent that we got this like very simple, sanitized, you know, portrait of family, that was never what family has ever, has Mm -mm. ever meant or been. It was never true in the history of humanity. And and it's not just humans. I mean, it's not like we're the only animals who do families that aren't blood relations. Lots of the animal kingdom does exactly that thing. Mm -hmm. So to pretend otherwise seems disingenuous for starters, but also, you know, silly. Family is complicated. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And the notion that you can't, you know, love entirely with, you know, body and soul, a a child to whom you are not actually like blood related, just, it doesn't even make sense to me. I don't think that argument holds water. So it's very interesting that is held up to us so frequently. I mean, I suppose, you know, I have come at it from the other end, which is like, I have just written this book about adoption and, you know, I think adoption is just so often presented to us as the last resort that Mm -hmm. everyone is settling for. And I don't think it is. What I read on your website is that it was not your last option. No, it was a choice. That's right. In my particular case, my husband and I did adopt our kid and that was our first choice. That's that's what we chose to do. We, you know, we didn't try to get pregnant because 
because we wanted to do it this way. I don't know that I could because I did not try, but I don't know that I couldn't. It certainly was not the case that because we could not get pregnant, we decided to, to adopt. We decided yeah. to have children and then in like more or less the next breath decided that that we wanted to adopt. And, you know, that's not the right choice for everyone, but it doesn't mean it's not the right choice for anyone. I don't know if the term baptism by fire is is a good one, but, <laughs> but I can just speak from having a child a biological child and you go home with this infant, you're already in shock and you're exhausted. You got the baby and had what, a 14 hour flight? Yes, that's correct. Yes. With a yeah. nine month old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's true. That was definitely baptism by fire. Uh, <laughs> that was absolutely a challenge. I mean, you know, is it better or worse than labor? I don't know. <laughs> do labor, but I certainly don't hear that it's a walk in the park. So I feel like maybe it's six of one. It was definitely mm-hmm. had its challenges. And, you know, and that I think too is the way that parenting is. Parenting has its challenges, definitely all the time. And you know, I think we were less prepared because people don't talk about it as much. If what you want to know is what is it going to feel like to bring home a newborn, there's a lot of material you can read. Oh, about. yeah. There's much less about what is it going to feel like to get on an airplane and for 14 hours with a nine-month-old who you met half an hour ago and is now <laughs> yours. And so, you know, I think I was less prepared in that way. Given the labor versus the 14-hour flight, I, I think... Hands down, I'd do the labor again. Yeah. That, yeah. With a nine month old. Oh, yeah. Poor you. Poor all, all of three us. Of you. Yes. I mean, that's so rough. On the topic of family, yeah. you have a novel coming out the week of my birthday. Thank you for timing it that way. Cause yes, you know, it was I, my intention. Yes. Happy it's birthday. Like, <laughs> it's called Family Family. Um, could you give us a peek into that story? Yes, I can. Well, it's about family. It is about an adoptive family. And I went into it wanting to write about adoption, but wanting to write about adoption in a way that was not presenting it either as tragic or as this like tragedy narrowly averted. Like it was so terrible, but then a miracle occurred and they learned to love anyway, despite the odds. I didn't want to write either one of those things. (laughs) And it was therefore hard to find the plot of this one. Um, And one of the things that I realized was I needed not to write about an adoption, but as many adoptions as I could fit into you know, 385 pages, whatever it is, reasonably. And so that's what it's about. It is about a large and sprawling and strange and ever-growing family. It is also about a movie star who finds herself embroiled in a, what starts as a social media scandal and very quickly becomes a, a scandal on social media, but also in the press and politically and in her driveway and at her job and all of these things, because she's done this movie about adoption and she thinks this isn't very good. And admits as much to a journalist and, and it's sort of all whoops. Yeah, whoops, exactly. Well, and it also is about having a dream job. You know, she's a star of stage and screen. Um, She's wildly successful. And it's what she has wanted to do her whole life. And it is very much a dream. And she's very successful at it. But it is also a job. And it is also really hard work. And so the book is about that, too. And it's something that I wanted to write about because I, I, too, have what is undeniably a dream job, which is my dream, and it is many people's dream job, but it is also a job and it's a lot of work. And the pool of that is endlessly fascinating to me. So that's why I want to write about that too. It's a fresh spin on the adoption story, especially the adoption right. savior story. Like right. this nice white couple adopts this 
child left at the border and right. they are going to save her. And That's right. I hate those stories. I do All too, because them. it it discounts the love that a poor set of parents feels for their child. And how many highly successful, highly functional people were raised by those parents? And how many highly dysfunctional people were raised by well-educated June and Ward Cleavers? Sure. Right. These are really complicated stories. So it's no good when we sugarcoat them and we do the savior narratives and we sort of say, oh, all all a family needs is love. You know, that's love is what makes us a family. Like this is insufficient and shortchanging what is a very complex and often very painful, very fraught situation. But so too, I think, is the other end of that, the other swing of that pendulum, um, the other end of that spectrum, which is like, this is always terrible. It is always a tragedy for everyone involved. Everyone's life has been ruined forever. And the best that anyone can hope for is to make do with this, you know, absolute subpar situation. I don't buy that either. So as ever, you got to find, you know, where the story is in the middle and to find a way to like talk about what is fraught and complicated rather than than sugarcoating and papering over. And it's so personal too. I mean, but I was talking to a friend of mine who's adopted and I was telling her, I said, you know, I, you, you don't ever want to meet your real parents. I would think that those parents would just be so excited to see the daughter that they got. And she said, but you don't understand. I have really great parents. Yeah. it's such a personal thing for the adoptee, for the for parents. Everyone. For the birth mother, too. Like, maybe she is still sad and unable to let go and, you know, feels heartbroken, longing, you know, to meet this child. Or maybe not. And that's okay, too. Yeah. It seems really, really problematic to say, like, this person's life was ruined by this. Her, she yeah. never recovered from letting you go. She was miserable forever. I think, well, like, yeah. who wants that? And I, you know, and I think it's reasonable to say, I let you go. And I don't, I don't want to meet. I mean, yes. some people will want to meet. and Some people yeah. will not. And that's okay. Our stories are kind of like our children in a small way. If someone were to ask you, okay, what's the difference between your third child and your fifth child? Different challenges and different heartbreaks and joy and chaos. And so I started thinking about the five children in This Is How It Always Is. The fifth child are presented challenges that were totally different from the other four. You are on your fifth book. Did this novel present yeah. any special challenges? That is such an interesting question. So I started this book on March 3rd, 2020 on writing retreat, actually at Ragdale. So like I was in a prairie outside of Chicago in the middle of absolutely nowhere. We're supposed to be a month long, you know, writing retreat. I was very, very productive for, I guess, seven whole days there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then, you know, the world changed. My kid came home from school for a year and a half, which definitely is the opposite of being on writing retreat as far as one's productivity level goes. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and so like, just practically speaking, I wrote this book in, you know, 15 minute increments between remote school disasters. 
But also, this is contemporary fiction. It takes place more or less now. And now was changing out from under us. You know, every morning you woke up and now was something different. And and this too presented like practical challenges. Like, okay, where do characters gather if they don't go to school, if they don't go out to dinner, if they can't, you know, run into each other at the grocery store? Um, Those kinds of practical questions. And I guess, you know, just kind of philosophical ones. I mean, you know, novel writing, as you know, is very long, takes a long time. It's very forward looking. It is this, you know, notion that you're writing for a few years from now. And, you know, we were in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, there was nothing that I felt like I could reasonably assume about a few years from now. So this book underwent significant changes. I cut 300,000 words from this book uh, over the course of it because the world kept changing. Wow. Yeah. Um, Is that like a gutting? I mean, uh, you know, of the things that were hard about that time, like, you know, writing a novel was not one of them, you know, among other things, it was nice that I, I did control as opposed to the one I was living in, which I, you know, could not at all, but it definitely took a lot of wayfinding drafting it's not a linear process for me mm. it, it it certainly is a lot of wandering about in the dark under the best of circumstances and obviously those were not the best of circumstances i didn't realize it was this book i remember you talking about hiding in the bathroom in between homeschooling so exactly. what would you like us to know about family family it is about what i'm always always on about which is this idea that wider ranges of normal make the world a better place for everyone That I think is what all of the books are about. Mm -hmm. And it is also about this like large and sprawling family and the ways in which 10-year-olds are smart and and heart forward, if only it will let them be. And, you know, I like precocious children. I like (laughs) conversation. I like people to talk things out. I think that it has a lot of complicated, but I hope, real feeling relationships in this book. And I guess the thing that I want to assure everyone is that though I eschewed the obvious plots about adoption, there's still a lot of plots. I think that this book is pretty page turning because we hear from so many different parties. I think the pages turn. And that was something that was important to me going in, that it not be too ponderous because I find family to be pretty frenetic Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make sure we were doing that on the page as well. Wow, that's a challenge. Yes, it de- well, yes, it definitely. Especially was when you have several people talking at once, yeah. just the just the mechanics of it, and yeah. keeping you know for the reader to not go, okay, wait, who's talking? Yeah, like yes, especially because I am a dialogue heavy writer. I know I, you're so good at it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm inclined towards dialogue. I want to be listening to people's conversations and that's great, but it, with a large cast of characters, it gets overwhelming quickly. Mm-hmm. And so you see why exposition would be great here. My editor keeps writing that in the margins, like, could you give us really some exposition of any kind at all? <laughs> and that is good advice. <laughs> here are 300,000 extra words of exposition. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Can I see, well, show you my cuts folder? <laughs> what has writing taught you about yourself? You know, that too, I think changes a lot, certainly, you know, day to day, but to your previous question, book to book. One of the things that I think is difficult about novel writing is that each one is 
really wildly different from the one before. And so what you learn in the previous book, I find does not help me in the next book. Mm-hmm. That whatever the lessons are and the problems that I have gone to great lengths to solve, that doesn't solve the problem next time. That solution doesn't work next time. It's a different problem. And so in some ways, the answer is nothing. I I haven't learned anything because every time it's something new. But I suppose more broadly, the answer is that it, it is not necessary to panic when something isn't working, when something isn't coming, when it doesn't sound right, when you know there are plot holes, when I have written myself into corners, when... Uh, you know, it doesn't sound good or it isn't interesting or these characters aren't where whatever the problem is, it's not necessary to panic because I will edit it and it will get better. And that process is not quick and it is not easy, but it's not impossible either. Um, and I will do it. I know that I will do it. And so that I think is what I have learned over the course of the thing is, is not to panic, just to like <laughs> let the process play out and see what happens. Some authors say when they get in those pickles, they stop and they'll do an outline of what they have so far. Yeah. Is there anything like that that you do? I like that idea of outlining, particularly because I can't do it before because I don't know what's Mm going to happen. But once you have an idea, I do that a lot. And it often is less an outline and more, you know, like drawing, like I get out an actual piece of paper and colored markers and uh, colored pens and I'm doing things like that. Sometimes I get out index cards. Index cards play a large role in family family. And it is because I was in an index carding place with that um, and like lay things out on the floor and that kind of stuff. Often though, it is like, okay, I need to go walk the dog. I need to go do something else for a little while and trust that this will come and it will it will come clear. I also find that I spend a lot of time writing while I'm not writing, which is to say like, thinking about these problems while I'm driving or waiting for coffee or waiting for my kid to get out of whatever it is I'm waiting for her to get out of. (laughs) For me, I'm usually reading a book in those moments, but I think that a lot of people are on their phone. And instead of doing that, I make myself sit there and think like, okay, what is the problem and how am I solving it? So that when I get back to my computer, I'm ready to write. You mentioned reading. What are you reading right now? Let's look. Shall we look? Let's look. Yeah, let's um, look. You've got you've got a few look. books over there. I have you. so many books. I have, and this is one of I think like nine or ten bookshelves in my house. I am. I have a lot of books. Um, this book that I'm recommending to everybody these days. We are all completely beside ourselves. Lauren Grodstein's new book. Right. Um, it is. It is about the Warsaw Ghetto, um, but it is for that. I think it is very timely. I think it is also hopeful. Um, it is very sad, but it's also uplifting. I think I love all of her books, all of them. And I think this one is her best one. So, you know, so take that. I loved it. I am recommending Naomi Alderman's The Future to everyone who will sit still long enough to listen. She's another one. I love everything she's ever written. This one blew my mind. Her previous one, The Power, is a book that I also recommend to everyone all the time. And I didn't think it could be topped. I mean, just because I think that is an essentially perfect book. And this one is, it's not that it's so much better than I think it is. It's that it's more 
expansive. It's a really remarkable book that I'm recommending to everybody. I'm always and forever recommending Percival Everett to everybody. This man has 30 some novels. He basically writes a novel a year. They are all of them completely different than anything you've ever read before. The trees blew my mind. Couldn't get over this book. It is about lynching. It's very funny. It is a very funny book about lynching. And like that is is my pitch for like personal effort in general. He's just doing things that nobody else is doing and writing about race in this country in a way that I think is brilliant. When you complete a novel yeah. and you send it out into the world, what has to happen to bring you back to that shiny, clean, fresh page? I have usually started the next by that point. I usually start the next almost immediately. I feel like novels are really daunting. And if you don't start the next one, you never will because it's hard. And, you know, from the base of the mountain, you're like, I can't climb that. That's ridiculous. I feel like you have to start. I mean, I think it is, again, more of what I was saying before, which is I know it doesn't need to be brilliant at the beginning. So it's okay. I just need to show up and start writing. I mean, I also find to be perfectly honest with you, that writing the book is so much easier than publishing the novel. (laughs) I think publishing is really hard. And and so in some ways, the answer is like, I get back to my shiny blank page and I'm like, hooray. I get to sit here by myself. I get to sit here by myself in a world that I made up and have complete control over is definitely my, a more comfortable place than the like, book promoting circuit. Yeah. Can you give us a little hint about what you're working on? I I would if I could, (laughs) but it is so extremely early that I don't really know yet. Don't know exactly what it's going to be. In fairness, I've been doing a lot of stuff to promote this one. So that is where most of my attention has been. I'm not talking about the new one yet, but. Okay. I'm going to ask it a different way. We know you're working on a new book. Yeah. Without asking what it is, but but saying like you're not completely sure what it's about. Yeah. How far into it are you? Like page, word count, something like that. Make us feel better about the books that we don't know where they're going. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And maybe a quarter of the way in. Wow. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And it's hard to say, you know, and again, because I am regularly cutting 200 300,000 words from a book, the number of words from my first draft that make it into the bookstore, I I don't know what that percentage is, but I would guess it's south of 5%. It's a lot of wayfinding at the beginning and trying to figure out what is this really about and where is it going exactly? To me, what it feels like is I don't know what happens to these characters because I haven't met them yet. Gotcha. But of course, in order to meet them, I have to write them. And in order to write them, they have to do something. In early days, I'm really just guessing and not even particularly educated guessing, just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. And then once I know that, I go back and, and edit it a few hundred times. I'm picturing Lori Frankel with a set of Barbies <laughs> and she takes them out. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about her? I don't yeah. like her. I like her. How do you feel about him? I almost everything is no, I don't like it. My kid used to have a bunch, but I don't know that we have them anymore. In our case, (laughs) they were usually attending women's marches and stuff. They had a lot of protest (laughs) signs. You know, she was at that age at that time. And I don't know where those are now that I think about it. I hope you took pictures. Lots of pictures. I I took pictures. Here's my question for advice. Okay. There's the rejection. Some of us get published thinking you're going to hit it out of the park and you get like a 
two-star review or you don't get the sales, whatever it is, whatever it is. How do you keep the momentum and keep loving what you're doing? It's a really important question because it's not just sometimes, I think it's most times. <laughs> and short answer is I don't read the reviews. But the longer yeah, answer, you know, or look at the Amazon numbers or whatever, longer answer is, as I say, I really like the writing part. I like writing, I like drafting, I like revising, I like the editing, I like all of that. I think if you don't, then you you shouldn't bother. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if the idea right. is like, I hate all of this, but I'm going to make myself do it because then when the book is published, I'm going to feel really good. I just think, uh, oh no, this is... This is. <laughs> so the answer to that question is I stop worrying about... You know, like you, you kind of go through the publicity cycle because out in the world you have launched it. And, you know, it's a few weeks of that. And then I go back and write some more and I return to, to the job part of it, to the, the day to day, you gotta get up and sit down and write all day long. And I really like that part. Like for me, that is the motivation is if I get through the publicity part, the publication part, then I will get to go back and and write some more. And we are all happier for it. And really like deep down every day grateful that I get to do it. Well, you you have a gift and we're grateful that you choose to do it. Thank you. And that you're in a place that you can. I appreciate it. I mean, from the bottom of my heart. To learn more, visit laurifrankel.net. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support. 